This is a drink with a friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Seth Haynes. Seth, what you drinking? Well, as you can see, because we record this vis-a-vis a little uh, online conferencing mm-hmm. uh, service with cameras, I'm double fisting today. <laughs> yeah, I am drinking uh, in one hand the dregs of my athletic greens from the morning. Mm-hmm. And in the other hand, as you will see, I'm holding a coffee cup that says "Well Met," well met. which is uh, it's it's actually from a, a a little coffee shop called Hail Fellow Well Met. It's right downstairs. We've talked about it before. It's by mm-hmm. Onyx, my favorite coffee people yeah. in the world, or at least one of my favorite coffee people peoples in the world. Um, and I went in today, and I know the barista uh, who's a friend of mine, and I said, "Hey, make me." The most soccer momist drink that you can make me, because Ooh, can I guess? I'm yes, I'm. So, but hold on, I'm so tired. I, what I said was, I'm so tired of coffee because I've had COVID. I'm not really wanting coffee, so but I need it because I'm extremely tired. So give me a a caffeine delivery service that will be pleasing. And so mm-hmm. I, he made me the what he called most soccer momist drink. So take a shot. What is it? Okay, it's got oat milk in it. I can tell you that. Oh, right? you're already off to a good start. <laughs> um, does it involve vanilla or hazelnut? Uh, one of those two, but you have to make a choice. Shoot, vanilla. Vanilla, indeed. Okay, vanilla what, latte with oat milk? Yeah, but what kind of vanilla? See, you, you've given me a great soccer mom drink, but there's something that makes it the most soccer mom <laughs> drink. Shoot. All I can think of is like either Mexican vanilla or vanilla bean or mm, that, what else would actually, there be? That's, that's, those would be good guesses, but sugar-free vanilla. <laughs> oh, sugar-free so vanilla oat latte. This is a guilty pleasure, evidently, of nice. mine now, and I'm going to drink it forever. It sounds really good, actually. It yeah. actually is delightful. So way to go, hail fellow well-met, Bionics. <laughs> and for all uh, of you out there who are soccer moms, um, this was not in any way a slight on you. This was just yeah. a recognition of your phenomenal taste. That's right. I'm all about soccer moms. Yeah. Come on. So, Tish, yeah. what are you drinking today? I'm drinking black coffee, but in, um, you know, in true to the spirit of my current six-month challenge... I was so I was at a store this past weekend and I needed to get some things and I spent an, an inordinately long time looking at locations of all mm. the packages. This yep. is a new thing for me, knowing yes. where things come from. Mm-hmm. And so um I went with the Austin, Texas uh option. Well, there were many options actually, but I went with this one. It's from Tiny House Coffee Roasters. I've never um, been there, but now I okay. want to. All and right. um, it is their Ethiopia blend called Aricha, single mm. origin. All right. Tasting notes of caramel, lemon, and apples. And it is very, very good. So oh, I am wow. happy about my my choice in uh, black coffee. So okay. All right. Win, win for this practice so far. Yeah. Tiny it has house- not been a pain. Yeah. Tiny house coffee. Yep. Okay. So if anyone out there is listening and knows anything about Tiny House Coffee, please uh, drop us a line and let us know what you know yep. about Tiny House Coffee. Yeah. Unless it's bad. I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. If Well, if it's bad, tell us, but we won't talk about it on the air. There you go. There you go. Okay. No. Well, speaking of talking and maybe talking about things we would rather not talk about, yeah. um, <laughs> what's on your mind for today, especially in light of the past couple conversations we've had? Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how difficult it is these days to have conversations about anything. Um, as you know, um, when I announced my challenge of giving up social media for six months and certain forms of algorithmic news, I got a whole lot of pushback. And it was all pretty kind, to be honest. Um, But I think that there were probably also some punches pulled, if I'm super honest. Mm -hmm. And one of the um, things that I have heard before, I have not gotten this pushback on this challenge, but I have received it before on similar challenges is, oh, what you're doing is such a privileged thing to do. We talked about that a little bit last week. And, you know, there are just certain ways right now of a dialogue and conversation Right, that when you take a stand on anything, even something as simple as I'm not going to be on social media for six months, um, for whatever reason, people start throwing out these like verbal grenades, 
you know, like, oh, that's so privileged or, oh, what? And, and it's really stuff that's designed to minimize you and shut you down. Now, as we talked about last week on the last episode, there there are some things to be said about privilege and like actually taking a hard look. Um, but if you're throwing out words like that to minimize people or to shut them down or to belittle their life choices or, or whatever, um, that's not actually dialogue. That's a rhetorical tool, uh, that, that often, more often than not brings more division than it does understanding. And so one of the things that I've really been wanting to talk to you about is how do we have conversations with people, uh, with whom we might disagree we might not agree with their decisions. Uh, we might not agree with their political positions. We might not agree with their church positions. How do we have these conversations in ways that forge understanding instead of ways that sort of, um, you know, throw out these rhetorical language grenades, um, I'll, I'll call them. And I'm sure that you've maybe experience some of that even in your 100-mile radius uh, challenge. And if you haven't had it directly, um, I'm sure you've had it sort of to the side. And that issue aside, I'm sure that we've all experienced it in a crazy era of politics and religion and just everything that's divisive. It's like all of a sudden we feel like it's it's open season to come at each other uh, with these uh, rhetorical language grenades. I love the term a verbal grenade. I think that's spot on. At the risk of being hyperbolic, I would even argue that this is so important, knowing how to have conversations that don't um, completely stop in their tracks because of those verbal grenades, um, is going to potentially save our civilization. And yeah. I say that at the risk of being hyperbolic. Agreed. I realize how it sounds, but boy, howdy. If we don't remember how to have dialogue and use reason and logic and come with um, a spirit of good intentions to to understand, um, that's going to be a fall, not unlike Rome. And so this really, really, really does matter. I think it matters a great deal. I think it matters a lot um, when it comes to us passing this on to the next generation. One thing I am doing in one of my classes this uh, for the next few months in my class of ninth and 10th graders is we are going through logical fallacies because of this very issue. I see that um, adults don't know how to have conversations. Adults don't know how to um, disagree with charity. Adults don't know the difference between arguing and quarreling. Yes, and- we do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, it's okay. You're a cotton heady and ninny muggins. Mm-hmm, that's my... That's right. uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, if we can't ourselves do that as, quote, mature unquote, adults, how could we expect the next generation? And so that's why I think this is that important a topic. Yeah. I got an email from a reader this week that I thought was really um, interesting. And um, it was also, she's also a listener. Uh, Hey out there, if you're listening along, it's really good. Um, In the email, (laughs) she talked a little bit about um, things on which we might agree and things on which we might disagree and not not intentionally. She was just stating her positions. This is who I am. I am this type of person in the faith space. I am this type of person in the political space. And there was no guile to it. Um, There was no assumption that I was uh, one of those two things. Um, One of them, I've sort of outright said what I am. And so, yeah, there was some assumption there that was correct. But but just sort of saying, and it was really refreshing to hear somebody say, I am this, and my political, political persuasion is this, and not be like afraid to say those things. Um, and I really appreciated that. And it reminded me of an era, you know, when I was in high school and college where you could have those conversations and you might vehemently disagree. In fact, you might think that the person on the other side of the conversation um, was extremely incorrect. Uh, but you wouldn't ever go as far as saying, and yet, and as a result, they hate the country or they're the enemy. Um, mm-hmm. th- these weren't phrases that I remember sort of being around. Um, I remember there was a, went to very conservative little, um, uh, I say little, it was a moderate sized private 
school, Christian university. And there was a professor there who was the, um, uh, the chair or the sponsor for the young Democrats on campus. I think there were four people in the club uh, out of a school of like 4,500 or 5,000. Right. In the late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. There were like, there's nobody was in this club <laughs> and yet um, nobody ever mocked him. Nobody ever, you know, threw out these, these verbal grenades. Like you hate the country. You want the downfall of America. You're a communist. You're a socialist. But, but, and he would poke a little bit and it was always funny. And there was always some good banter going back and forth. There was always an exchange of ideas though. It was a season and a time that was marked by an exchange of ideas, and he wasn't afraid of us. We weren't afraid of him, um, and it was a really interesting time. And I just feel like that's gone. We've lost mm-hmm. that. Yeah, this this sounds like a twisting of the words. So I might have this like verbal salad come out, and then I have to like unpack it. But um, something I've been thinking about lately is whenever we um, try, like, let's say in good faith, we try to have a conversation, and then it gets stopped in the track in our, the tracks from something like a verbal grenade. I think one of the problems is we um, have misunderstood this idea of freedom of speech that we think we are free to say whatever we want. And that could be a whole like months long to unpack. So I'm not going to right now. But I would argue that there are certain forms of speech that are a violation of the freedom of speech, because what you're doing is stopping the freedom of speech of someone else. Mm. And that's what I'm seeing happening with these verbal grenades is that we think because we have places like Twitter or um perceived ideas of the other based on what the media has told us. They're like um, that we have the right quote to say certain things. We have the right to assume. um, I'm going to just use an example that's common. I am Mm -hmm. not here to commentate on it, but Mm -hmm. that someone who has chosen not to get the COVID vaccine is anti-science. We jump these huge, huge conclusions. And so if somebody wants to explain their side and then they come in and the the other person says, well, you're just anti-science. Yeah, they might have the legal freedom to say that. But what you just did was stop a freedom of speech from happening. And so therefore, you're not really embracing what is true freedom here, this true freedom of ideas, the freedom to disagree, um, because you are just... um, making 27 assumptions based on one piece of information. And we forget, honestly, that there are certain fundamentals that do not change um, no matter how we choose to say them or no matter how we want them to be. And one of the, uh, one of the core um, transcendentals there is truth. We, we don't get to decide what's true or what's not. So we don't get to decide that person is anti-science. That's not for us to decide. And if the definition, the simplest definition of truth is what is, then if we are coming to a conversation without being willing to be wrong and to find out what's actually true versus what I think is true, then we are basically eschewing the desire for one of the core, what I think divinely appointed transcendentals, um, one of the three, you know, between truth, goodness, and beauty. And I mean, I know I'm getting kind of highbrow and philosophical here, but I think that's actually what's happening. It's just a matter of, um, so what do we do about it instead? Um, and so this is why it's such a problem, because we're denying literal truth. And yeah. the concept of truth is no longer a thing, really, in our culture. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, the to me, it's important that we have a free flow exchange of ideas and free form conversations because those things help us refine what we believe about things. And, um, you know, there've been things over the course of the last 20 years that have changed my opinion, you know, uh, good gracious dialogue has changed my opinion. Um, I remember, uh, again, back in the late nineties, I would have, you know, sort of called myself a card carrying, um, Republican, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and talk about politics now. Since we're talking about hard things, like let's do it. Um, it. And when I was in, it was after my first year of law school. I was with, uh, a, I was clerking at a law firm. It was a fairly large law firm in the state. We went to lunch and I was talking with another attorney, an employment attorney. She had been 
you know, she was maybe eight years, 10 years out in the practice. And she started asking me, you know, hey, like, what do you believe about this one issue? And we would talk through that issue and she'd say, okay, yeah, I can see you're a Republican there. And then she would talk through another issue and she would say, hmm, that, that doesn't feel like a Republican position. <laughs> that really actually feels a little bit more progressive. And then we would talk about another one and, well, that kind of sounds like something I would say too. And as we sort of started talking through this over the course of a summer, she finally came back and she said, you know, you're a closet Democrat, right? <laughs> and and it was really funny and we had a good laugh about it. And, um, and you know, I won't sort of tell you where I landed on that. But I mean, through the, through the entire summer, the course of the summer, I refined a lot of my positions. Um, mm-hmm. Some of my positions became... Um, because they were calcified and clarified through dialogue, some of those positions became much more what some would associate with the left, and some of those became more associated with what you know some would would view as the right. Um, and again, that happened through gracious dialogue, and it continues to happen through gracious dialogue instead of calling other people the enemy. Um, you know, we have. I, I like to try to practice gracious dialogue. It's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to get away from social media, because that is a place that does not uh, foster gracious dialogue. And, and my concern to your earlier point is that it's actually a grave disservice and harm to democracy. Why? Um, because it, it further uh, entrenches us. It, it balkanizes us. It moves us from one side uh, deeper deeper into our trenches, deeper into our sides, um, and, and it allows you to score points over and against the other for, you know, flaming and torching them, um, mm-hmm. in, in their opinions, um, without remembering that, Hey, a lot of us live in the same country. A lot of yeah. us are, are, are fellow, you know, Americans who are tasked with, uh, you know, forging something that continues on for our kids. Um, and to do that, we have to be able to disagree and talk and dialogue and refine our opinions. Yeah, I was going to ask you how perhaps your uh, view of this idea is being shaped by your current fast. You know, I know part of your fast isn't just the idea of pure social media as a habitual practice, but it's also to free yourself from the algorithm. And I presume that means um, you're not necessarily burying your head in the sand when it comes to news, that you're still you know, perhaps practicing some form of, of keeping up with, with the news. And so I'm curious if you are seeing a difference yet in um, how you are maybe quick to at least mentally throw verbal grenades unintentionally when you read something like, let's say in a Twitter feed versus, you know, however it is you're getting the news at the moment, do you feel different already? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, this happened this morning. Um, this morning, my wife and I were talking about uh, an issue, um, and it, you know, it was a vaccine-related issue, and somebody had made a decision to not be vaccinated. And I said, "Good grief! With all the science, how in the world could you possibly blah blah blah?" <laughs> and I got really worked <laughs> up about it. Yeah, and then I was like, "Well." I did read this article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal that said this, this, and this, and I did see this report on Axios that said, you know, maybe Omicron is resisting uh, antibodies, and I did see, and so all of a sudden, as I'm having this conversation, and I'm thinking through center centrist publications, publications I think everybody would agree are centrist, uh, saying, well, there are some actual questions out there. Then, you know, I kind of backtracked a little bit and was like, okay, well, I can vehemently disagree with the decision not to be vaccinated. And I can vehemently believe that the science is a certain way. But then to castigate someone as as being less than or or ridiculous or, you know, whatever the verbal grenade is, uh, you know, that you want to toss out there. Like, Mm -hmm. I can disagree graciously and and I don't have to go on Twitter and blast the person. I don't have to go on Facebook and blast the person. I don't even have to blast them in my own house. Um, instead I can pause and say, okay, what's a gracious way to look at this? Um, and if I were sitting in the room, how would I approach that conversation? I think those are the the questions that we need to start asking ourselves is one, what's the gracious way to share my opinion, my thought, my belief, my data. If you have data, I still believe in firm, good data. Um, 
what's a gracious way? And if we were in the same room, how would I approach this conversation versus, you know, behind a closed door or across a Twitter feed? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think um, the past few months I've been intentionally practicing getting my news from center left and right, traditionally speaking, um, resources. I, I've i been thinking a lot about this quote that is misattributed to Aristotle and is probably kind of a conglomeration of all sorts of ideas so that maybe no one said it, but it doesn't matter. Um, and it's this quote that says, it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Um, I think sometimes we have this fear of listening because we're afraid by listening, by yeah. um, by just the nature of not responding right away, we're complicit in agreeing with it. Yep. Like yep. if we're just choosing to sit there and listen to perhaps a news outlet that is traditionally not on the side that we identify with, and we just listen to like pick an, a topic like the vaccines or COVID or whatever, um, and just hear their ideas, like maybe listen to a podcast that is traditionally on one side or the other. And um, just to sit with that feels like a foreign practice because I think so few of us do that anymore. And because we can just get all this information that confirms our bias. And so we can just move forward without um, entertaining an idea without accepting it. And that bleeds into our relationships. And so we are therefore able to... um, just almost like self-select who we surround ourselves with. So everybody we're around agrees with us. And then when we're hit with somebody that perhaps thinks slightly differently about something, then we almost don't know what to do because we're out of practice of listening to ideas without accepting it, just being willing to hear and willing to learn. And I think um, what we miss out on is ultimately nuance because, and I'm sure this is true with you, you could not really peg me politically because I contain multitudes because I'm human because we all contain multitudes. And so there, I am so nuanced about what I think about so many things that really the only way I could really explain is through conversation. I can't like, I can't explain what I think about the public education system in a tweet. There's no way I could do that. And so the only way we can really move forward and entertain ideas with, and whether we like choose to accept it eventually, because we've, learned and grown and changed our mind or not, we have to have conversations. There's no other way to. That's right. That's right. I think it's also important to know and to go, you know, to, to operate with the eyes wide open, you know, like there are some news sources that are left or right that I don't need to read. Right. and, And the reason I don't need to read them is not because I'm afraid of their ideas. I don't need to read them because they're couching their ideas in ways that are, you know, predetermined to make me afraid. Yeah. I mean, they are manipulative. They are trying to get me to do a thing or to move away or to see a certain way. They're not ideas on a blank slate. They're various forms of propaganda. And, and I'm pretty hesitant to call out news sources for that. I I think generally speaking, a lot of news uh, writers particularly the hardened journalists are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to tell the right story, even if they come up with a bias. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit loath to, to, to sort of point fingers in that realm. But where I see mm-hmm. this a lot is in the independent journalist space hmm. or the YouTubers or the, I'm going to go do my researchers or whatever you want to say. Um, and I know it's going to make some people mad on that are listening along and that's okay. We can disagree about this. Um, but like when you're, when you're doing things intentionally to capture attention, uh, in the most, um, bombastic sort of way or to put things in the most, you know, uh, you know, dangerous light so that you reel me in to your side of, of the equation. Like I, I don't need you in my life. Um, so here's an example of that. There was a uh, there is a a quite quite famous in some circles uh, YouTuber who's carved out a certain niche in the world of uh, faith and um, was on a uh, big network news show and the question arose about um, a school 
who had allowed uh, a allowed a, a a club, a satanic club, on campus, hmm. and it went from. You know, it could have easily been like, hey, I disagree with the decision to let the satanic club participate to this is what the Democrats and the leftists want. They want to show us that they are aligned, essentially aligned with uh, satanic practice and demonic practice and trying to push Christianity out of school and uh, supplant it with these humanist ideologies. So there was this connection between the satanic club and Democrats and socialists and communists. They're all sort of lumped in together um, as one entity. And that was a rhetorical device meant to scare mm-hmm. people, to drive people away from real dialogue and to say, hey, look, if you uh, agree with this, then you are Satanist. You are, you know, whatever. Now, Here's why I take I use that example and take significant umbrage with that and say this is still a point of dialogue. I have worked with a very, very well-known, extremely conservative attorney as a writer um, who wrote a book uh, about uh, free speech in the school and the free practice of religion within the schools and religious accommodation within the schools. And his broad point was... We need to allow as much religious accommodation in schools as is humanly possible, even if we disagree with the accommodation, because it's that freedom of religious accommodation that allows our Christian kids, our Catholic kids, our Jewish friends, our Muslim brothers and sisters to have and to to, to have these spaces to meet and strengthen their faith off school hours in these clubs like you can't have one without the other right and so it, when you when you uh, take that and you like really think that through and begin to argue that and talk about that and have that conversation it brings a ton of nuance to the decision of the school which i think was in texas um it brings a lot of of nuance to that conversation mm-hmm. it's not simply this school system is evil. The Democrats are Satanists and socialists and, and, and whatever communists uh, who are in league with China. It is no, actually there's like Supreme court precedent about this stuff. And there's actually like religious accommodation law about this. And actually there are some really amazing hardcore Christian uh, conservative attorneys um, who could actually bring nuance to this conversation, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, and so I say all that to say, like in that situation, that newscast, I don't need that in my life. Like, I know that what they're doing is rhetorical. The mm-hmm. person who they invited, I, I don't need him in my life. I know what he's doing is rhetorical. Um, there are certain places and certain people who don't want dialogue, who don't want free form exchange of ideas. And when you identify those people, like you don't have to give into their whims. At least that's what I think. Well, and to me, this is exactly why we need to be better versed in the logical fallacies. You know, this sounds a bit cut and dry, but I really do think so many of us are unaware of these rhetorical devices used to um, manipulate us with us unawares. Honestly, Um, a lot of us have uh, lost the art or just simply were never taught it um, to recognize when people are using sleight of hand tools to communicate their point of view without um, opening up to discussion. So it becomes a verbal grenade by way of stopping a freedom of speech. Um, and, you know, so we don't recognize sleight of hand tactics like ad misericordium or, or uh, you know, ad hominem attacks, which are just fancy words, just talking about like ways to bend logic a little bit to stop people from um, having their own ideas or, or persuading them to see your side. Mm-hmm. I am, however, in addition, going to push back a tiny bit on what you said at the, at the beginning about um, small and indie resources. And the only reason I'm going to say that is because I think we've kind of had a reckoning the past few years with a lot of these larger institutions that have become rather one-sided. And, you know, I think uh, whether we like it or not, a lot of these, uh, you know, media institutions, higher education institutions do largely skew progressive. And so there have been cases of voices that have been flat out silenced 
uh, because they dare hold a slightly different view. I think a great example, because we keep bringing her up on the show, so might as well, is Barry Weiss, you know, when mm-hmm. she left the New York Times last year and started her own Substack and podcasts that yeah. are now like enormously successful and are um, all kinds of nuanced and, and, you know, you can listen and disagree, but still learn. And so I think uh, it requires some wisdom and discernment to recognize that which is worth listening to and that which is just using sleight of hand tactics to um, not really open up to dialogue. So that's just a thought I wanted to toss out. Yeah. And I think that's fair. I mean, I think it's fair to say like, you can still listen broadly. And I think that there are people who are doing you know, doing research out there who are, you know, whatever, um, you know, independent journalists or citizen journalists. I mean, I think that there are very capable people out there doing very good work. So I don't, I don't want to shut all that down either. Uh, I was on the phone with um, a literary agent not too long ago who was telling me about their client who goes to a lot of really high profile uh, lawsuits, you know, because you have these, these open courts that, you know, historically only reporters and the people who are in them have gone to. Um, but this person's going to these trials and is taking notes and reporting back and, um, and has some interesting observations. So I don't want to in, in any way shut down that, you know, all freedom of information that comes through, through conversation. Um, even stuff I disagree with, even when people manipulate data or m- read data differently, that's fine. As long as there's, an openness to having conversation and dialogue um, that I can either agree with or disagree with on its own merits, not because, Oh, this person says everyone who believes this is a communist and Satanist. And so therefore, um, you know, there's some huge culture war uh, that I'm on the wrong side of. If I don't necessarily agree with that, that that's the kind of stuff where I'm like, man, that's just, you know, back to your point of ad hominem attacks. That's, that's yep. all that is. Like you're a communist because you disagree with me. Well, come on now. Are we in second grade? Um, <laughs> so maybe the question that I would have for Tish, the professor is um, explain some of these, these sort of, you know, rhetorical devices that people use. Um, take me as it were to class, professor Tish. Well, you know, we could do a, a deep dive on these various topics as standalone episodes. So I am not going to bore everybody to tears with like, you know, Latin verbiage that really has no application to real life. But um, the ones that I talked about with my students this past week come under the large umbrella, which is um, ad fontum, which is this idea of arguments against the source. um, If you know Latin with fountain. Um, And so uh, ad homonym is the classic example of this. So basically what this is, this is, I mean, you see this everywhere. If you are on any form of internet, you have seen this. Um, you're just attacking that which is stated where it comes from versus the thing that's stated. So ad homonym is attacking the person themselves. So Seth, you say something and I call you a cotton-headed ninny muggins. Like that is... Or a communist. Or a communist, yeah, if we're going to get more serious. Uh, you know, you're just jumping right into like, whatever, like, I've just decided I don't like your argument, so I'm going to shut it down by calling you something. You yeah. see this a lot in um, everywhere from the playground to presidential debates. So yeah. it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, ad hominem circumstantial has a lot to do with where the person comes from. So um, I'm not going to listen to you because you're a lawyer and lawyers are bad people. That kind of thing. Mm. You probably have never heard any sort of insult towards your your profession. Listen, I'm sure. Every every party, every party is said sort of insult. Ha ha ha! Very funny, right? Um, to quote has to do with hypocrisy. You know, so someone says smoking is bad for you, um, and then you can say, "Well, you have no right to say that because you smoke." So. You know, we could argue a point and you could point out how that person is not a perfect human being in that particular topic. Um, So in the way of, you know, maybe talking about something that uh, is more relevant to this, uh, you know, like since we keep bringing it up, the vaccination situation, perhaps somebody is arguing about, um, let's say, uh, vaccination mandates, you know, like I don't like, even though I am pro vaccine, let's say I don't agree that companies should be forced by the federal government to require their employees to be vaccinated. Well, someone could then say, but you work at a place that requires that. 
So why do you believe that? That kind of thing. Um, and then the fourth one is um, just throwing out an idea based on where it comes from. So um, I, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. Like if we're going to go to the other side, uh, you know, I think socialism has some merit. Well, that comes from Karl Marx, who was a Russian and Russians are not to be trusted. And so we jump to these huge, like, because that idea comes from something, therefore it doesn't hold merit. So when it comes to modern ideas, you could be reading something that based on, you know, you can then do some research and wow, this idea kind of holds up, but then you recognize, oh gosh, this journalist is from China. Maybe I shouldn't listen to them at all because who knows whether this is um, a state run outlet. You might be right, but does that mean that very idea is untrue? That kind of thing. So that's just a quick rundown of examples that we see everywhere. And, you know, to bring it back to the topic that we have here about having relationships or how this can affect relationships, I think it all comes down to this combination of listening instead of just being quick to speak and um, your in game being truth and yeah. not whether I want this to be, whether I want it to feel right in my bones based on what I want, like my confirmation bias or whatever, like basically a desire for truth at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even if I don't like where it's headed, right? Um, that kind of thing. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that we uh, can base things in truth. Karl Marx was a German Tish. Oh, he was. I met German. I knew that. I knew that. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> See, I can't believe I can't listen to anything you say now because you said Karl Marx is right. Russian. So that's a great example. And that's why I said that actually. All right. It was, <laughs> it was a elaborate, uh, example. That's a great two cool cake because what you're saying is you've been wrong about one thing. Therefore, you must be wrong about all things. Yeah. Great right. example. We see that everywhere. We see right. um, or even like, you know, in in uh, political debates, if somebody had a view about something that turned out to be wrong, like let's say they voted to go to war in Iraq, yeah. um, that therefore they should be wrong about every single thing 25 years later or 30 years yeah. later. We see this everywhere. Well, so, yeah. And, and here's here's one that that is. Uh, to coquet, to use the phrase, and also ad hominem, is if you're wrong about one thing, you must have dementia. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's what we see now. Mentally that's, wrong with you. Yeah, there's that's like the that's like the modern example of it. We've seen it um, on the right. Now we're seeing it on the left. Is oh, like you can barely, you know, have a sentence get a sentence straight today, and ergo you must have some sort of early onset dementia. <laughs> um, or you slipped going down a staircase, and so now uh, you you know you're a breath away from being in a wheelchair and dying, you know, or mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, yeah, and 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 that's the thing that is so disheartening to me is that it seems like we rely more and more on those forms of argumentation than ever before. Am I wrong about that? No, I think you're spot on, and I think it's because we. Um, I don't know. We could get into the how this happened and this can be, you know, a whole series of episodes, but Twitter allows us to say things in 280 characters, even less before when it started. And so there's no room for nuance. Literally, you know, you can't, you can't get into things uh, in that short of character space and we don't click over to read more, you know, when we read the headlines. And so therefore we just jump to our conclusions. We've lost the ability for long form concentration. There's a billion reasons why this is true, but I really do think it's true now more than ever. If you look at presidential debates from the eighties with George Bush senior and Dukakis, I want to say, I forget which, uh, which race it was. You would think they were having a tea party compared to what you hear now. Um, yeah. and how they interacted with each other, how they treated each other. You know, there are stories of back not too many decades ago, people who were on the other sides of the aisle, like senators, um, would vehemently oppose each other when it came to um, policies, but would also like golf together on the weekends and have each other's families over for barbecues. And I don't think we know how to do that anymore. And so I think that's where we're going with this conversation. Like, how do we have people over for dinner, even if we disagree with them? Yeah. Um, so do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it starts with just doing that, that very thing. You know, there, right. there are some people, um, you know, I have some, some dear friends. I went to a dinner with one of them not too long ago and, and we disagree on a lot of things. Um, 
But you know what we, we particularly politically we disagree i think on the efficacy of vaccines i think we disagree on um everything related to the pandemic in general um Mm -hmm. we disagree on probably the role of education in society we probably disagree on on more than we don't yeah um but we went to dinner the other night and we sat down and we were talking about kids and the struggles of parenting and what it means to live a faithful life in the middle of a world that seems to have gone absolutely off its rocker. Um, And what I found was as much as we disagree on the things that are really important, like, like actually important, like faith, uh, loving your wife, raising good kids, um, being a generally productive member of society, like working hard, not being soft, (laughs) you know, like, we agree on all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, at the end of the day, like that's the stuff that matters. Yeah. It, it, the, my position on, you know, pick your political topic of the day doesn't matter. My position on vaccinations doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I can kick and scream and raise my voice and raise hell all I want, but I'm not going to change Trump's mind or Biden's mind. I'm not going to change the WHO (laughs) or the CDC's mind. Um, You know, I can believe a certain thing about, you know, any topic. And when it comes to an institution, like I don't have the power to change that mind. Um, And so I think finding that sitting across the table from somebody and and having a conversation about the things that matter while holding firm to the things that you believe, um, but that don't matter as much is really important. So I, I would even say like, take a list of the hierarchy of things that are actually important. I don't think mask mandates is really that important to my everyday life. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, um, you know, when you think about what social media can do for us is create character caricatures of people. I think one of the problems is people really have associated a moral good or evil to those things. So if you agree or disagree with a certain position, you are actually a good or bad person. And so we have this weird connection where we can't fathom someone holding a different position and still loving their children, still wanting what's best for the common good. Really and truly, they assume it's almost like we're using the same words and but having different definitions, yeah. you know, like yeah. you assume certain things. And so I think you're absolutely right. The square one solution is actually, you know, literally having those dinners. Yeah. I watched this TED talk, um, knowing we were going to be talking about this, of this woman. It was fa- uh, rather old now, but um, she talked about like how to have a conversation with someone you disagree with. And, and her main point was take them to lunch or have lunch with them. And then she said, use these three, she calls them questions. The first one's not a question. So I take issue with <laughs> with calling it a question. But the yeah. first thing she says is um, to say, share some of your life experiences with me, meaning like, tell me about you. And that could honestly be the entire lunch. She's basically making the point of um, coming to learn, not coming to to prove this person wrong. The second one is asking what issues deeply concern you. Like, tell me what matters to you. I want to know. And that's honestly where it'll probably lead to like what you were saying. I'll bet you most people are not going to talk about, you know, some obscure political issue. They're going to be talking about their family or their faith or something. And then the third thing is, what have you always wanted to ask someone like me? And I think there's a way you could word that that Mm. makes it sound not so, um, you know, avatars, you could, you could just say like, what do you want to know about me? And let them ask questions instead of you telling them what you think they want to know about someone who maybe holds your belief that they know and they hold differently. So I thought those were three good things to keep in that mind. A great, that's phenomenal. And also, um, if you, you can make anything a sentence, I mean, a question, you just have to put a, a question mark at the end. Yeah. Share some of your life about you. <laughs> Question tell mark? Me, yeah. Tell me about your life. Exactly. Um, no, I think those are. I think those are are great. And I, I think you know, at the end of the day, you know, what I really like about this podcast is that it's two people sitting down having conversation. These conversations are not scripted. Um, and if you keep mm-hmm. coming back here and listening, you know, it's you're at the table with us having a free flowing conversation. And there are going to be times that you disagree with us. 
Yeah. Um, and there'll be times you disagree with me and that's okay. I'm okay with that. Um, and, and there will be times if we ever meet in person, dear listener, that I will disagree with you. I'm sure of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I commit to you and I hope you'll commit to us and to the rest of the humans in your life to not engage in some of these logical fallacies, to not say, because you hold a different view than I do, you are evil or you are communist, unless the person actually says that they're communist or right. evil, I suppose, um, not to attack them based on um, you know, moral failings or based on some perceived hypocrisy, but to do your best to listen, to ask questions, to disagree with grace and to find the things that you actually really care about and forge some sort of unity. Yeah. Well said. Well said. And I think you and I are on this journey just as much as the listeners are. We have not figured this out. You with, with uh, fasting from social media for six months, me or the algorithm, me from prioritizing the hundred mile radius. Mm -hmm. I think both of these dovetail perfectly with this idea of learning to listen and learning to have hard conversations because we can't, we can't not if we want to still be a functioning civilization. We absolutely have to learn this lost skill. That's right. And if we don't learn this, Tish, you're a communist and I'll refuse to talk to you from now on. <laughs> well, you're an idiot. So I don't okay, know. Okay. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> there, that's, that's more like home. Yeah. So Tish, tell me, what is it that you are reading, watching, listening to that's bringing the beautiful into your life? Well, in the spirit of my uh, commitment this this first half of the year, I had coffee with a friend on Saturday. I'm going to oh. try and do that weekly as best I can. And she basically walked in the co- into the coffee shop and she said, have you read this book? Which I'm going to tell you in just a minute. And I said, no, I have not yet. And she's like, please take my copy. I need you to read it because I need to talk with someone else about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's that good a book. And to me, and she's well read. We talk about books all the time. So to me, you can't get a better recommendation, right? Just a friend that says, please read this so we can talk about it. So um, I am doing such. It is Amor Toll's uh, The Lincoln Highway. Have you read that? Oh, no, I haven't even heard of it. Okay. Uh, Amor, I don't know if it's Amor or Amor, A-M-O-R tolls. Um, you have probably at least heard of his two other novels, uh, A Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility. Yep. yep. And this so far, I am what, page 85 into a 571 page book. So it, I cannot tell you yet if I'm going to end up liking it, but I love it so far. It has been truly enjoyable to um, just dive right into a novel that I know nothing about. Like I, I didn't even read the flap of like what the topic was. I just page one, let's see what this is about. And I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, it is fiction, but it's about a real Lincoln highway. It was the first paved highway in the United States that went across the country from New York to San Francisco. And it's very, very good so far. So, huh. okay. Yeah, it seems I'm like a really it. boring read. If I'm going to be honest, I can't imagine it, a work of fiction on a highway. You know what? I would have never picked this up had my friend not suggested it. It's not about the highway. It is loosely it plotted along this highway. So oh, okay. Um, right. I think you might actually like it. it it's very Steinbeckian so far. Oh, so. gosh, boy. Yeah. I'm actually yeah. staring at some Steinbeck here on my bookshelf. I'm at work. And do you know I actually keep Steinbeck at work? And you're a lawyer? Really? I am. I keep it here because from time to time, when I want to remember what it means to be a good writer, I open it up and I read a couple passages and then I start writing a brief. That's a good idea, man. I think we've talked about that before and I think that's a wisdom. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Yep. Well, tell me what is adding more beauty to your life these days? Well, I am now 278 pages into Gabrielle Garcia Marquez's stunning work, 100 Years of Solitude. And I can tell you, it's a gap in my literary, uh, you know, exploits. And so I picked it up. Um, I've read a lot in January. Um, I think this is my, this will be my fifth or sixth book. I can't remember. Um, And it is by far my favorite of the bunch. But it's the only work of fiction that I've read this month. So I'm really excited about it. It's very good. It is not for everybody. I can imagine people saying, yeah, I got lost in that book. But I love I it. See that. 
Yeah. You know what? I, and I think just to, you just said this briefly, but I think it's worth noting that there is a direct correlation between you not being on social media and you being able to read five to six books in one month. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I find mm-hmm. that whenever, and the, so here's a good example of that. The other day, there's this little pizza parlor downstairs and I went into this little pizza parlor to order my food to take up here. And it takes about 10 minutes from the time you order it to the time you come back up. And you know what I would normally do, Tish? Yeah, sure. Scroll something. Scroll the feed. Yeah, I would yeah. scroll Twitter. I would scroll whatever. Um, but you know what I did this week is I opened up my Kindle app and just sat there and read and took some amazing notes and came back actually with an idea for something to implement at work that has saved my bacon. There you go. That's fantastic. So That's- I used that time to do something productive. So anyway, not saying you always have to do something productive, but getting rid of your uh, social media use does free up time to read. There's no doubt yeah. about it. No doubt. Yeah. I'm, I bet we're going to talk about this at some point, the idea of increased time, time you thought you didn't have to do all sorts of things. So, yep. Yep. All right. Well, it's time to wrap this chat up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at a drink with a friend.com. As always, if you like the show and what we're doing, you can help keep it going by picking up a round of drinks, which you can find at a drink with a friend.com and in the show notes of this episode. And thank you in advance. I also want to say, because we've been putting a link in the show notes of every episode, um, the place where you can go to learn how to come with us to Italy this summer, summer 22, um, Tune in to next week's episode, episode 105, because I've got something really fun to share about how you can join us in a way that might make it just a tiny bit easier for you. I'm really excited about this, and um, I don't think you want to miss out. We've already got a sizable group formed, and Seth and I actually don't know most of you yet, so that's actually kind of fun. Like, I think it's going to be an interesting, you know, motley crew of people, so um definitely consider joining us in Italy. I think it's going to be a fantastic experience. Uh, you can find me and how to connect with me at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, where can people find you? They can find me at sethhaines.com. And if you sign up uh, for my newsletter or for my Substack this week, I will send you uh, just this week a link to a place where you can find all the books that I read this month so far. Nice. I love that. All right. Well, music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenrider. I'm Tish Oxenrider with Seth Haynes, and we'll be back here again with you soon. Thanks for listening.